0: God's wrath against his Son. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? The Son of God and the wrath of God. David reminded us that uh, today is um, Palm Sunday. Um, I guess the Jews got excited about Jesus coming into, the, into Jerusalem because they had what was then the accepted view of the Messiah, that he was going to liberate them from Rome, he was going to re-establish the nation of Israel, this is it, the the one we've been waiting for. And, um, of course, there were Old Testament prophecies talking about your king uh, riding on a donkey. So it all fitted, and they were rejoicing. And, uh, as David said, they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus knew that the Jews were plotting against him. They knew that they've already put this... in in train and um, they were after his blood nothing less they wanted to have him killed and um, he knew the way that he was going to be put to death he told his disciples exactly how he would die and this was the last time that he was entering the city of Jerusalem and um, Jesus had warned his disciples repeatedly that this was his destiny And the within a week, the plot against Jesus uh, would be put into operation. It would all happen uh, within a week. So, from crying Hosanna, they would be crying what? Crucify Crucify him! What a what a contrast, isn't it? What a contrast! So we're going to pick up the story of the Easter story, Matthew twenty-six. Um, I'm going to read through to um, verse 46, but I'm going to miss quite a lot out just for the sake of time, really. So, Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then we find that he's anointed in Bethany. Judas goes out to betray Jesus uh, for a paltry sum of money in a sense and Jesus wants to celebrate the, dis- the Passover with his disciples for the last time so he sends them off with instructions. Somebody's pre-warned about it, that all the arrangements happen um, very conveniently and they gather uh, for the Last Supper or for the Lord's Supper for the Passover and So we pick it up at verse 26, now as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to his disciples said take eat this is my body and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I go over there and pray and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee he began to be sorrowful and troubled and he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me and going a little further he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing but the flesh is weak again for the second time he went away and prayed my father if this cannot pass away unless I drink it your will be done and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy so leaving them again he went away and prayed the third time saying the same words then he came to his disciples and said to them sleep and take your rest later on. See, the, honor, sorry, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So it's about Gethsemane really today. Let's ask God to help us. Father God, we are given insight into this intimate moment of Jesus with you, Father. And Lord, we want to know the, uh, the, the depths of, uh, of the suffering of Jesus, but also the depths of your love. Will you help us please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 31 to 35, Jesus predicts the disciples falling away. He is aware of their coming ordeal, not only his own coming ordeal, but he's aware that, that they will face an ordeal. And when it says they will all fall away, it means they will be made to stumble uh, because of him. Um, they will find it a problem, not because of the fear for their safety, but they don't understand what's going on. Uh, they, can't, they can't grasp the purpose of Jesus' suffering. And you, if you know the, the earlier part of the story, when Jesus announced that he was going to be crucified, Peter rebuked him. No, Lord, he says. You don't say that to Jesus, do you? No and Lord don't go together. Do that. Because they couldn't understand it. This is, not, this is not the way it should be happening. And um, it says that I will sh- strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd. It's the Lord who will strike the shepherd. It's the Lord's sword that is going to strike the shepherd causing the streaks the sheep to scatter and of course there is a prayer clear prediction of the resurrection there he says I will strike the shepherd the sheep of the flock will be scattered but after I am raised up I will go before you into Galilee with all that Jesus was facing and we'll enter into that a little bit in a moment um, Jesus knew it wasn't the end of the story because he was there for a purpose um, to gather disciples and to send them into the world and one day had to gather them all into his eternal kingdom. Peter, unprepared for the pressures ahead, boasts of his loyalty. Uh, it's not the first time, is it, but he boasts of it. And we understand his, his under, the way he's feeling. I guess in some ways, we were, you know, not knowing the enormity of what's happening, we all want to say that in some way. And Jesus is specific about Peter's falling away. The very famous denying Jesus three times before the morning breaks, before the cock crows. However, there is no rebuke in Jesus' words here. He's not larripping them with his tongue. He's just trying to warn them. He's trying to warn and prepare them. Yet they will still all fall at first. But they will be eventually gathered And they will fulfill the purpose for which they were called. 36 to 46, Gethsemane. I understand Gethsemane means oil press, olive press, oil press. And um, it was a regular rendezvous for Jesus and his disciples. It was a quiet place to go. Maybe they slept there on many nights. I don't know, but that's where Judas would know, he would know where they were. So it was a regular rendezvous. Um, rendezvous on the Mount of Olives and, and in this account we're, we're given a, a, the most intimate insight of Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Father uh, with him and uh, the nature of that relationship as well as the cost of his mission so we see the relationship, the wonderful relationship with the Father but also the terrible cost of his mission and Jesus needs his friends. Right? Oh well, Son of God, he doesn't need his friends. does he He's complete in himself? But it's a striking evidence of Jesus' humanity. Jesus was fully human. Right? Fully human. And the early at times of the early church, there were heresies about that, that tried to dismiss that and say that, no, Jesus was just spirit. He wasn't fully human. Today we have a job convincing people that he was divine. <laughs> but, but his humanity um, demanded that he wanted friends. This is a terrible hour and he wants his friends with him. So this is a wonderful blend of his humanity and his divinity. For sorrow and troubled read an anguish of wretchedness and deeply grieved. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You could read that in two ways. You could say the sorrow was so great that it would kill him. You know, and it does. Sometimes um, people have been so fearful, uh, and, and I guess that sometimes when they've had an, a, a curse put on them in some country that believes in evil spirits and the power of evil spirits people have died I don't believe because of the evil spirit they've died because of the intense fear that have come into them but it could also mean that my soul is uh, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death uh, to the point that I know I am going to die I know I am going to die Um, in Luke's account of Gethsemane uh, he tells us that Jesus being in agony um, his sweat like drops of blood, fell to the ground. The intensity of of his distress and agony, um, sweat like drops of blood, fell to the ground. And in in his emotional turmoil, Jesus wanted company. You can't blame him, can you? You know, in times like that, I guess we would too. And he takes Peter, James and John, who were his inner circle, and he takes... Them with him a bit further um, from the other disciples. And I guess within earshot of his, of his praying. It may be significant that these were the three that uh, Jesus took with him up the mountain that we call the Mount of Transfiguration, okay, um, where Jesus was glorified in their presence. Uh, they had the privilege of seeing the coming glory of Jesus. That was a foretaste of the glory of Jesus. It might also be significant that each one of these men also boasted that they would not um, uh, uh, deny Jesus. Um, And in fact, they both said, we can drink this cup. Um, Peter and uh, James and John, it was when their mother um, muscled in and spoke to Jesus and said, can I have my lads at the um, really high places in your coming kingdom. And Jesus said, they're not not for me to give. But he then turned to those two disciples and said, can you drink the cup? You know, you want all this stuff, but can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Yes, we can, they said. So the three here um, were those who said that they could uh, share Jesus' fate. Jesus asked the Father three times if there was a way of avo- avoiding this cup but is there any other way father you can't blame him can you is there, father is there just there must be some other way in your plan but no it was about to drink a cup and, and that was a f- common phrase for for wrath or uh, for pain or whatever else drinking a cup means you accepted it you, you accepted uh, the, the pain or the wrath or what, whatever it was And um, this was going to be more horrific than any man had had to bear and will ever have to bear. It was the cup of God's wrath against sin. This is the cup, it's the cup of God's wrath against sin. He had come to do the Father's will and now at this point of greatest test, he's obedient. Um, Do you know our salvation was hanging in the balance here? If Jesus had gone the other way, we wouldn't be here and we would still be under God's wrath. But he was obedient because there was no other way uh, to free us uh, from the wrath of God and hell. just want to quote you from um, one of these uh, studies by Phil Moore. Just commend this series to you, just bite-sized um, commentaries. Uh, on Gospels and various other, uh, Bible, various other books in the Bible. Very insightful, lots of illustrations. And I'm just going to read a, a little bit from, from one of these. It says, many people struggle with the idea that the Christian Gospel is the only way that people can be saved. They readily consent that Jesus is a way to God and even the best way to God. But they dare not claim he is the only way to God. That sounds too arrogant and intolerant in our multi-faith society. If you struggle with this question personally, I have some good news for you. So did Jesus. He grappled with the question three times in the Garden of Gethsemane and he got up from his knees with the answer. There was no other way. There's no other way. No other way for him. So what was this cup he chose to drink in obedience to the Father and out of love for us? We have to link those two things. It wasn't just obedience to the Father, but he loved us with an everlasting love. So what was it? Well, first of all, it's obvious that it's part, physical suffering is part of it. Okay? The physical suffering. It was absolutely horrific. But I have to say it wasn't unique Um crucifixion flogging and crucifixion were common in the Roman Empire and that's why Jesus knew what was going to happen to him and that's why he had just a terrible specter in front of him knowing what he was going to have to face you might have seen the film Spartacus years ago and um, uh, this was an uprising of slaves Uh, It wasn't successful and uh, they were all captured and they were all crucified and there were cross after cross after cross down the Appian Way. Lines and lines and lines and all these slaves were crucified, hanging there sometimes for days. So other people have suffered terrible things. And um, you may recall a few years ago The Passion of the Christ where Mel Gibson uh, um, directed the film... I believe he wanted to show more graphically than had ever been shown before the suffering of Jesus. And it was pretty horrific. There was blood and gore everywhere, wasn't there? Pretty horrific. But I still have to say it wasn't unique. Um, I've heard, I read, I believe this is true, uh, 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 years and ages ago, a Phoenician pirate was captured and they skinned him alive. Okay, I reckon that's a fair bit of suffering, don't you? So, although I believe Mel Gibson had a good intention, he slightly missed the point here, because Jesus' suffering was not unique. Yes, it was for us. Yes, he went through it for us. But I'd like us to consider the other suffering, which was his mental and emotional suffering, and that was to be completely unique. We all may suffer mental and emotional suffering. But the reason why Jesus suffered it and the intensity of it was absolutely unique. Uh, To understand this, we must consider the condition of man and the holiness of God, the justice of God and and what Christ bore for us. So first of all, the condition of man. Very familiar verse, we've quoted it lots, but all have sinned. We have all sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed God's glorious intention for us as human beings. That's Romans 3 and 23. But it's important to, to recognise um, uh, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are born with a bias, a bias towards sin. It's in our very nature. And you say, but surely a a lovely little newborn baby? No, no, no. There's no sin in that little newborn baby. Yes, it's there. And if you listen to what King David said, surely I was sinful at birth. Yeah, okay, at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We inherited it from Adam. We We can't get away from it. We have a sinful bias in our lives and we cannot do anything about it whatsoever. So we have God's righteous judgment against sin, his holy wrath, his righteous anger and it hangs over mankind. There are many people including Christians who think that the Old Testament and New Testament each paint a different picture of God. In the Old Testament, you know, God is um, fearsome. Sometimes we seem, seem to be vindictive, crushing his enemies, often hastily judging his own people, not tolerant of sin. Right? Judgment comes swiftly so often, doesn't it, in the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, God seems somehow softer, more loving and patient uh, with those who sin. And of course, the, the grace of God is more perfectly Um, Shown to us and revealed to us in the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ Um, we know that that he was the one and only from the Father full of grace and truth Um, but we must make no mistake God does not change uh, his holy wrath against sin that we see in the Old Testament still hangs over mankind it has not changed It's just that God's grace is giving us time. It's giving us time. Paul tells the church at Ephesus that they were by nature objects of wrath. They weren't objects of wrath because they did wrong. They were by nature objects of wrath. Then John in his Gospel, chapter 3, where we have that well-known... Gospel um, scripture for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in verse 36 we read whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life because the wrath of God what the wrath of God because we've done wrong because we've re- we've refused to accept Jesus. No, it says the wrath of God remains on him. It was there in the first place. And we can avoid the wrath of God, of course, by believing in Jesus. But all these things just emphasize the fact that we are by nature objects of wrath. We mustn't get a rosy picture of, of, of people. However nice they are, however lovely babies are, there is a flaw in mankind now. And God wants to do something about it. In Romans 2 he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What he's saying is the wrath of God is not being poured out now because God is giving us time. He's giving us time to repent. He's giving the world time to turn to him. But it's there, it's there because he says this, Because, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a fact. The world is ticking on. It's going on. And the wrath of God is being stored up. So there's the wrath of God against our very nature, our our tendency to sin. But there's also a curse on mankind and that's because we do not keep the law when the law was given through Moses uh, there were um, penalties for not keeping the law and if you don't keep the law you're under a curse that's, that's the law and, and Paul talks a lot about that how we can avoid the curse of the law Right. and um, in Galatians 3 Paul says this cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law so we've got a double problem, okay? We're under the, the, the wrath of God because of our natural nature and we're also under a curse because we can't keep the law. We don't keep the law. And the judgment of God on sinful mankind is hell. It is hell. And uh, Jesus himself says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I came across this article some time ago uh, by Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy L. Sayers, you may know the name. And it's about hell. This is about hell. There seems to be some kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency, to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable medieval doctrine of hell, or the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But the case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval, it is Christ's. It's not a device of medieval spe- medieval preaching. Priestcraft for frightening people into giving more money to the church it is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin the imagery of the undying worm and unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition but originally from the prophet Isaiah and it was Christ who emphatically used it he emphatically used it so we're in this dreadful state But Jesus comes on a rescue mission that's why God sent his son into the world to rescue us Um, Paul says to the Thessalonians Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath Jesus who rescues us and of course in Romans 5 we read but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us God didn't say sort yourselves out fellas And we might be able to do a deal. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And uh, it goes on, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's the only way, it's the only way we can avoid the wrath of God. So Jesus is come to save us from the wrath of God. And I can put it this way, Jesus saved us from the wrath of God because he absorbed the wrath of God. He took the sting out of it. He absorbed the wrath of God. John says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a word we don't use in general. Think Atoning sacrifice is how another version puts it. But it's like this. The wrath of God is upon us. But God then presents Jesus as a sacrifice in our place. And the, the, the wrath of God is placed on him. It is turned away from us and it's put on his Jesus, onto Jesus. And if you like, that wrath is expended on Jesus. He absorbs it uh, on our behalf. John Piper wrote this. If God were not just there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for the son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving, therefore his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Just to remind you, um, who is the one that, that slew Jesus? Who is the one that crushed him? Who is the one that made him suffer? Who is the one that made him a curse? It's the Lord. From Isaiah 53, you will know it, many of you, the famous prophecy in the Old Testament that speaks of God's suffering servant. And it's very, very clear. It's all about Jesus. The detail is amazing. And we read this. Yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And he makes his life a guilt offering. Remember, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So Jesus Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us, and he also became a curse for us. In Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he, that's God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This very unfair exchange, how unfair that Jesus should take upon himself the wrath of God, the curse of God, the punishment for our sins, and in exchange he gives us Free of charge, he gives us his righteousness. What an amazing God. What an amazing God that is willing to do that. So the awful prospect of alienation from the Father. That's what Jesus was experiencing in the garden. Yes, the physical suffering, I'm sure that featured largely. But the alienation he's going to experience where the Father looks on him and sees sin. He sees a curse uh, and his wrath is upon him. And uh, for Jesus, on at least two occasions that we have recorded, a voice from heaven says, this is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the cross, nothing. Nothing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? why have you forsaken me? and we now know don't we why he's forsaken him I don't believe literally God has forsaken him because Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself but as far as Jesus was concerned um, God was treating him as one uh, who had borne the sin of the world so so in a sense, Jesus consented to experience hell so that we wouldn't have to. Okay? And he knew it, and he knew it in the garden. Father, if there's any other way, is there any other way you can do this? Okay? But there wasn't. And so my contention is the physical suffering, yes, terrible crucifixion the most cruel things later on the Romans stopped it because it was, they considered it far too cruel but the mental anguish that Jesus experienced because he was carrying the sin of the world okay. surely again Isaiah surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed let's look at Jesus in the garden let's picture him films have done it writer to the Hebrew says let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author And perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before me endured the cross before him endured the cross. We all know what that joy was. The joy was that this very act would produce many sons for God, many sons and daughters for God, and that and that they would be with Jesus for eternity, his eternal companion, the bride of Christ, the joy of having redeemed people with him in eternity so he knew that was up and, and it enabled him it enabled him to endure the cross scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God let me ask you some questions as we close why would we not follow this man What? why would we not Give everything to be a friend of his why would why would we not? Why would we not sacrifice anything for him? Why would we not entrust our lives and our eternity into his hands? Well, why, why why wouldn't we do that? When you see the suffering and all that he, he's for us. You know, Paul said, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We can each say that. If we've invited Jesus into our lives as Lord and Saviour, we can say the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And really, this calls for complete surrender, doesn't it? Not half-hearted, nothing half-hearted about it. There's nothing half-hearted about what Jesus did, but whole-hearted surrender to Jesus. And I just asked the question, are you sitting on the fence? Do you think it's great being in the church? You know, I love I love the other Christians, I love doing what we do, I love the Bible, I love the stories of the Bible. But have you surrendered completely to Jesus? Have you trusted him completely? That's what faith is about. It's about saying, I trust you in everything. In life, in death, in whatever it is, I trust you. So don't Don't sit on the fence. He deserves everything we have, doesn't he? When we consider this, doesn't he deserve everything? You know, no holding back. Okay, going to close there. Um, The ministry team will be at the back. If you feel God's spoken to you in any way about this, if in some ways you feel, if only in a measure, you've been sitting on the fence, enjoying the view, as it were, but not fully um, given to Jesus, then share it with them. Get them to pray with you. Okay? All right. We're going to sing a song to finish.